Welcome to Victory Church's online podcast library. We hope you enjoy this message today. You know, I was thinking of, again, as we were talking about Noah, Peter said some interesting things about Noah. He, he talked about um, the flood in the sense of, of baptism. And he, he, he said something about baptism now saves us, talking about a picture of salvation that happens when we're baptized in water. And he pictured, Peter pictured the flood as a baptism of the earth, washing away the old worlds and beginning of a new world. Water baptism is a pretty powerful thing. It's a picture of immersion, immersion, leaving behind what you used to be and immersion into this new life of God. Um, if that we have a we have a water baptism every time we do beyond the grave at the end, and we also have one today after after Sunday morning service, the end of the service. If you haven't been baptized in water, it'd be a good idea to jump in the pool today. We have pastors there. We have changes of clothes and stuff for you and towels. All that's going to happen in just a little bit. But I want to share. The Lord put a message on my heart this week. I really I call it the Jesus testimony. Um, I start thinking about people. That the Lord used when he was here on earth and the people he's used historically, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't really matter. He'll use anybody. He'll use the, the most, the smartest of the smart, the richest of the rich, the dumbest of the dumb and the poorest of the poor. He uses whatever he has to work with. You think about Moses. Moses, you remember, you remember Moses? Remember Moses? He was, he was treated as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And apparently he was being groomed to be Pharaoh himself. He was trained in the highest academic potential of the most powerful nation in the world at that time in Egypt. He threw it all away because he considered the riches of Christ superior to the riches of Egypt. That's what it says in Hebrews. Then you have in the New Testament, you have another academic by the name of Paul. He was trained in the, in the top school of Israel, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the top teacher. He was groomed to be the leader of the Pharisees, and the Lord interrupted his life, and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So the Lord's not intimidated by academics or intellectuals. But he also chose other people to work with. So it was like all across the boards. And he chose Peter, of all people. Now, where where did he find Peter? Well, I know I'm going to go get the guy that's going to be my lead apostle. And I know where I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go to this place called Bethsaida, which means literally the house of fish. That's all it was. It was basically Venice. Or whatever. That's what it was. A house of fish. That's all it was. That's all they did there. If you didn't fish, you don't go here. So I'm going to go to Bethsaida. He knew what he was getting when he went there. He was looking for that. And he found a fisherman that was in trouble. Possibly. Couldn't pay his bills. It's the way the story unfolds. But I've got a, I want to read this story about, about Peter, um, Peter the fisherman. Um, as, as Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew with Peter and his brother Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, and they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
The calling of Peter gives us a taste of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't go to the temple or to the places of learning together, these first disciples. He went to a fisherman's village called Bethsaida, house of fish, and picked a fisherman to lead his band of followers. He found Peter doing what Peter did best, fishing. Actually, Peter's business was in a slump. Sound familiar? Jesus borrowed the boat to preach from and then filled the boat with fish, I guess a payment for using the boats. And the excitement of ripping nets and sinking boats, as well as a record-breaking catch of fish, Peter came to some strong conclusions. Jesus must be the Messiah, and, he, and Peter was a sinner in need of forgiveness. Those are the two conclusions he came to. That's how it all started. A fishing village, a fisherman who is willing to lay down his life and follow Jesus. This is how it's this, this, well, I'm going to skip that part just for time's sake with my blog. And I'll ask you a question. Are you a follower of Jesus? If, if the answer is yes, then what would you say is the reason? Why did you stop doing what you used to be doing if you stopped doing it? And why did you start following him and doing different things? Why are you following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? I guess for me, the only reason would be that his love is different from anyone or anything else. That's what captured the fisherman called Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day. That's what captured this fisherman on the lake, on the shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Maybe Jesus is coming by your town today or by your house or by your pew today. He's looking for, he's not looking for talent or wealth. He's looking for somebody's heart. That's all he's looking for. You see, falling in love, you don't fall in love with somebody necessarily because they're talented or they have lots of money. You might want to marry someone like that, but that's not what causes love is something unexplainable. Love is you fall in love with someone oftentimes, despite what the circumstances are. There's this strange attraction and this strange bond. You could call it chemistry and you fall in love with someone. It's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the mind. And that's basically how it is with Jesus. Ultimately, he'll win your mind. But what start what initiates the whole thing is your heart. It's your heart that he wins over. It's I, I, I loved him because he first loved me. I was captured because he forgave me and brought me out of my misery. Somehow he loved me despite what I was. Yeah, he worked on my understanding and gave me intellectual understanding later on. But but it was my heart that he captured. That's why we follow him. That's why we love Peter. You know, Peter put his foot in his mouth a lot of times. But Peter was a man of passion. He preached from his heart. He lived from his heart. And that's why he was who he was. Now, this this second guy we got to look at. I love this. His name was John, Peter and John. They were both. They were actually in the fishing business together. So John was, you know, just a kind of a sidekick. He wasn't even the main guy, the sidekick in this fisherman's business in this pitiful town called Bethsaida in this pitiful fishing business that was not even getting by. And there was John. Yeah, so I, I, th- I think about John and, and his story. 
And I, I, you go, I, I want to fast forward. And he was there that day. He left his, his dad's, his dad was involved. He left his dad, Zebedee, another fisherman, and he followed Jesus. And three or three and a half years later, he found himself in the midst of a, and a swirl of controversy, controversy and blessing, excitement and challenge and misunderstanding. He was there in a place that we know as the upper room. It was the night of, of the Last Supper. A lot was going on that night of the Last Supper. You know, Jesus, of all things, Jesus dressed himself as a servant that night and he washed all the disciples' feet. He washed their, their filthy feet from walking in the streets of, of Jerusalem. Peter resisted and Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. And John was there for for all of that. Then Jesus instituted the the Last Supper. He taught them about the, the Passover meal being a picture of the Last Supper. This is my body and this is my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. John was there for all of that. 2,000 years later, all of the followers of Jesus are still doing exactly what Jesus taught them to do in the room that night. It was important. It was valuable. He also spent time for the first time teaching extensively that night about the Holy Spirit about the vine, about the coming of the paraclete. All of that was was going on in this room, in this swirl of very important business taking place just moments before Jesus would be arrested to be crucified. But one last other thing happened. It was the betrayal. Judas left out of that atmosphere, the Last Supper, the teaching on the Holy Spirit, the washing of the feet. And he went and he betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver. Later on that night, he betrayed him with a kiss. Have you ever had somebody who betrayed you and lied about you and then comes back and hugs you and say, I love you, brother? That's exactly what Jesus did, Judas did. And there's Peter, John, in the middle of all of this. Well, what was John? This verse, this is, this brings us to my, to my blog about John. I am John. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom in the middle of all of this. What was John doing? He's laying on Jesus' bosom. In the middle of all the squirrel, the, the, the betrayal, all of this. I, I don't really understand what's going on, but I'm just going to lay here. I like this spot right here. I'm going to lay on Jesus' breast. This verse is one which is easily overlooked in light of everything else that was going on. There had just been a shocking foot washing where Jesus himself washed everyone's feet. Then there was the Passover meal where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which had been celebrated, which has been celebrated by his followers for 2,000 years. In the middle of these most important events was the betrayal. Judas went out to betray the Lord. While all of these events were unfolding, the author of this book, John, was laying on Jesus' breast. Nothing else seemed to carry more, any more weight than this. To John, all that matters is that he was with Jesus. That's all that he cared about at that moment. When telling this story, he couldn't even say his own name. He was just the one that Jesus loved. That's how he identified himself in this story. When I read this passage, my mind always turns to Joseph. He was Jacob's favorite son. Jacob said so. Joseph's words many years later ring out through the centuries. I am Joseph. When he said, I am Joseph, he said that to his brothers who had betrayed him. 
But he was reminding that Joseph had an identity. He was he was in, in slavery. He was in a pit. He was in slavery. He was in jail. He was lied about. I'm sure for part of that time he was offended and hurt. But somehow in the midst of all of that, he came to the conclusion that the dreams of his childhood were true. And for him to say, I am Joseph, carried significance. I don't know about all this stuff, but I am Joseph. When his brothers were there trembling that they were going to get, they were going to get retribution for what they had done. He said, no, I am Joseph. What you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. He sent me ahead of you, ahead of you to protect you and provide for you. Even though you had evil intentions, God meant it for good. I am Joseph. I am the one that Jacob loves. I am the one that God loves. I am favored by God. <laughs> yeah. So I read this passage, my mind turns to Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. Joseph's words many years later ring out through the centuries. I am Joseph. I want you to say that with me. I am Joseph. <laughs> I like say it again. I am Joseph. There was something special about being Joseph. He was the separated and favored one. That's me. Somebody, somebody else say something out there. That's me. I am separated and I am favored. I'm separated from that culture in this world. I'm separated from all the evil, all the lies, all the striving, all the trying to scramble to get to the top, all that, all the confusion that's in the world, all those voices. I'm separated from that. And in the midst of my separation, I am favored by God. No matter what people say or do, I'm favored by God. He can throw me in a well, put me in jail. I'm favored by God. Throw Joseph in jail, imprison him, put him in a well. He still ends up as the prime minister. So, so when I imagine John laying on Jesus' breast, I hear John's thoughts loud and clear as he's, he's laying there. I am John. Now, here's how Jonathan Edwards describes this verse. The son's intimate enjoyment of the father is expressed by that. He's saying that Jesus enjoys his father. In John 1.18, it talks about, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he's declared him. What John was saying and what Jonathan Edwards was saying is that, that Jesus has been laying on his father's bosom from eternity. It's his place of security, his place of rest, his place of power, his place of identity. I am Jesus. I am my father's son. And then John, I am John. I am my father's son. I am favored. Now think about this. Story for a minute. You know, the way the apostles looked at things, if you go back and read some of the first, I remember reading some from Polycarp and Justin Martyr and, and Irenaeus and some of these guys from the first century, the first disciples of the apostles. They would, they would ask, I remember one wrote to one of the other ones, I can't remember the right names, one was writing to another one, and he asked him to pray for me, have a prayer request. I'm praying that God would give me the grace of martyrdom. Would you agree with me in prayer? I don't, I don't understand that. But so, so here you've got 
all, if you know your church history, you know all of the apostles except for one were martyred. From John's perspective, he got the raw end of the deal. He's the one that didn't get martyred. Why did they get blessed and I didn't get blessed? I'm here on the Isle of Patmos and those guys got to go lay on Jesus' bosom in heaven. Why didn't I get blessed like they got blessed? And then he realized, I am John. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he turned around and he looked and he saw the one that he loved standing there on the beach. He saw the one that loved him while he was standing there on the beach. And John was still, he was, he was also Joseph because Jesus was about to give him a gift that would be a gift for me and for this last generation. He was about to give him the gift of the book of Revelation because he was on that beach being in exile for his, his testimony of his faith. Oh, he was sent ahead. Yeah, John was Joseph too. He was sent ahead to provide for us in this last generation. There's a riches, there's a treasure trove of riches in the book of Revelation. Have you embraced it? It's more valuable to you than winning the lottery, my friends. It's more valuable to you than a billion dollars in the bank. Read it. Embrace it. It was a treasure given to our Joseph, John. I am John. I am the one the father's love, the father loves. Ah, I, John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I turned around and I saw him. He had eyes like lightning, his face like the sun. And I fell on my face like a dead man. And then there was, we're talking about the testimony of Jesus. Let me tell you about another one. This was another one of the inner circle. Her name was Mary, Mary Magdalene. She was right there. I mean, she was favored, favored of God. We don't hear that much about her, but at the end of the day, she's the first one that preached the resurrection message. She's the first one that saw Jesus in the, after he was raised from the dead. There's a reason for that. I remember something Jesus said to someone. It, it may have been her. In Luke chapter 7, there's a story. Jesus was, went to a, a Pharisee's house. He was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for a meal. It was Luke chapter 7. If, if, you, if Just a few verses later, Luke chapter 8, Mary Magdalene shows up for the first time in the story. But in Luke 7, you see this woman sneak in. To Simon the Pharisee's house. It says, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. I wonder what kind of sinner she was. Everyone knows what kind of sinner she was. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she had heard him preach. She had heard about forgiveness of sins. She said, I don't care what they do to me. They can stone me for all I care. Let me touch his feet. Let me kiss his feet. And I'm ready to die. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, no one is quite sure who this woman in the story is. Some say it's Mary Magdalene. I think it was. 
If it's not her, Mary surely had a story like this one. She was possibly a prostitute. We also know that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That's what makes her story so amazing. Someone who was at the bottom of life in a pit of misery was promoted to the very top. Mary went from a woman of the night to the first preacher of the resurrection in the brightness of God's new day. Just like Jesus taught, she loved much because she was forgiven much. She loved much because she was forgiven much. She had no hope. She had no shots. Her future was dark until light came bursting into her life when he said, woman, your sins are forgiven. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Like many of us, Mary had probably spent her life hiding in the shadows, hoping not to be noticed. Looking for another opportunity to make some money just to get by on. All she knew how to do was survive. When she heard Jesus speak, she just had to hear more. Could this message of forgiveness of sins include her? Could she have a fresh beginning? This new hope rushing into her life chased out all of her fears of rejection for the moment. She would sneak into Simon the Pharisee's house of all things. The chance of being stung for her sins was well worth the risk. She just had to see Jesus. In a moment of time, she found herself at her Lord's feet. Washing his feet with her tears and her hair. The next words were the most shocking, yet sweetest words she had ever heard. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You know, if if you'll come to him, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you'll come to him. If you'll come to him, you'll hear the same thing deep down in your belly. You'll hear him tell you your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. No matter what you've done and where you've been, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, your faith has made you whole. Go and sin no more. You're a different woman now. Yeah, you have a different future now. I'm making all things new in your life. You have a new lover now. You've got a new Lord now. You've got a new purpose now. So she could be standing there. When she came, I'd love to see what she looked like after she saw Jesus for herself. After she saw him on that resurrection morning, no one else had seen him yet. She came knocking on the door. Who is it? I am Mary. I've seen Jesus and he's alive from the dead. (laughs) Well, those words changed everything. She felt the hate, the lust. The anger and the darkness come out of her. She felt light and love surrounding her, filling her with a joy. She had no idea that it even existed. Mary's life had been changed. She had to follow Jesus. Where else was there to go now? Was she going to go back to the pimp? 
What else would she do now? She had, she had a new life, a new love, a new Lord, a new clean heart. She had to follow Jesus. It was for everyone. It was for everyone who would hear what she had to say. It was, it was for everyone else who would hear what she had to say. Her sins were forgiven. And your sins can be forgiven too. Now you can just take these three, these three people, these, these three that were part of that inner core. I mean, they were in the inner circle of all inner circles. Two fishermen and a prostitute. In that inner circle of inner circles. Like I said before, he, he'll let anybody in there. He'll let rich people or poor people. He'll let skinny people and fat people in there. He let, he'll let smart people and slow people, intellectual, trained people, and those not so much. They're all welcome into his, his little circle. He's got a job for all of you to do. But I think it's amazing that the ones that he put on the forefront at first, yeah, a few years later, he launched Paul into the fray. But at first he launched with the They were acute in Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, after the lame man was healed and they had already begun to turn Jerusalem upside down, we get a little inner, inner circle of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees that arrested Jesus and now had arrested Peter and John. And they said, who are these guys? And they used the phrase, these are uneducated ignoramuses. And they've turned Jerusalem upside down. They turned Jerusalem upside down. It doesn't take much. One, one lame man who'd been lame for 40 years will do the trick. It doesn't take much. But it takes a lot. Even though it's just a little bit, it takes a lot when it comes to, to you and me. Because what does it cost me? It cost me my love. It's a heart change. And it's an allegiance change. I used to love this and now I love that. It's, a, it's not like something else has been added to my life. No, a, a new life has begun. The other one's gone and now I, I love different things. I have another person who's at the center of my world now. Oh, I might still do the same things, have the same job, live in the same house, drive the same car, and do much of the same things I always did before, but none of it's the same. Everything has changed drastically, permanently. I'm doing it for different reasons now. I'm doing it for different reasons. Because I have a different love. I have a new heart. Visit our website at www.victorychurchnola.com for service times and more information.